I was hoping everyone would be here because I had an announcement that I think everyone would like to hear. Um, and I was hoping that when I said we're going to get started, there would be movement in the back of the room. There has been none. Um, so I think I'm going to start by just saying um, what a wonderful pleasure it is to have Conrad here. Um, over the, I don't know, how many years have you been online with Laurie? Since the beginning. Since the beginning. I mean, just like a very long time. And none of us, or I think you met David and Silmar, you were there like five years. Yep. But other than that, none of, no one else here in the Laurian field has ever met Conrad. And he's this amazing guy. And he writes uh, eloquently online, and he has been such a supporter of Laurian and the work that we're doing over the years. And it's just, I, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to have you here. Um, he's going to describe what he's doing himself. He doesn't need me to do any more than that. And his own presence will be his um, a much better introduction than anything I think I could do. Plus, I actually can't pronounce the tradition that you that you represent. Took me a while also. <laughs> so I tried. It's not like it never tried, but I I have. Zuta Hill. Zutzahil. Zutzahil. Maya. Okay. Maya. Um, one other small announcement. We have a, um, a orphan cell phone that was left in David's uh, talk. So if uh, your cell phone seems to be missing, um, here it is. Um, if you want to identify it as, a, as an iPhone. Um, <laughs> Um, I want to make one other announcement um, and apologize for what happened with the John Matthews um, presentation that was happening. We, we had a technical glitch. Um, I don't know if it's techno elementals or my lack of ability to understand the technology or, or interfacing with it. But I think something good has come out of it and that we did actually eventually get a hold of him. And he gave a presentation and a meditation, exactly what he was going to do with his PowerPoint. We recorded it on Zoom. <laughs> so those people who were actually going into these other groups and were said, sorry to miss John, you will not miss John. Because I will put this up online and have it accessible to you. We'll send you an email and say, here's where you go. Um, and it's wonderful. He did a wonderful job, and so and he's agreed to release it like that, so everybody can can uh, see it. So it'll be online, and that's a positive. <laughs> so without um, so without further ado, thank you. <laughs> well, it's welcome to be here. For those of you that have seen me online. Uh, you usually see me dressed in my artifacts, if we would go back to the terminology. So I'm going to try to use as much as your terminology to describe what it is that I do and what I do in assisting indigenous culture, my culture, in at, uh, Lake Atitlan. It's in Santiago Atitlan in the highlands. There are three volcanoes that are around the area, and the lake itself is a volcano, an active volcano that is the bottom of the lake. And the uh, Zusihil Maya are one of 28 
aspects of the Maya that still are in existence, even though academics up through about 10, 15 years ago said the, the Maya were extinct, that they no longer exist. So we have 28 different language structures with different ways of communicating with their forces that are so alive for them in all aspects of life, very much like reading David and everything that David has talked about through the years. That's why David has always resonated within myself to understand an important template that I'm going to be emphasizing today. And that's the template that we're talking about today of wholeness. Because so much in indigenous cultures as there is in the Western culture, European, Asian cultures today, there's such a focus on duality. There's such a focus on right or wrong, or to get rid of an illness, or to get rid of different problems that we begin to have. But that's really not at the heart of Gaia. It's not at the heart of the indigenous worldview, but it's something that they've lost, I feel, over the years. And the way my mentor described it in the late uh, 1990s before she passed, Linda Sheely, she talked about how the ancient Maya understood something because they were able to create such civilizations that they were able to create astronomy and mathematics with the aspect of zero, predicting eclipses, predicting all of these different aspects of astronomy and astrology. They were able to work with a language system, one of the primary language systems on the planet today, because they had a relationship with the unseen world. Now, she never understood what that relationship was. And whenever I would try to describe her, she always threw her hands up in the air and walked away from me. And then days later, she pondered it. She said, okay, what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Well, why, well, why did you say this structure that was there? Because I was trying to bring about for her to be able to experience and some of the other academics to really begin to understand what is at the heart of an indigenous culture today. In, in my culture, in the late, in the mid-1800s, the prophecy was that they would begin to lose their memory of what their culture was about. And it would begin to decline. And there would be a time when people coming from the north on big birds will come back into the area to help rekindle the memory of what they have lost. Now, from my perspective and my communication with the subtle forces, and the subtle forces for the Zutihil Maya live in a place called Elbar. It's both a place that exists on the earth and it exists in the subtle realms, very much like Shambhala. And many of the stories of Elbar are very familiar if you're aware of Shambhala from the Tibetan Buddhist approach. There's a lot of parallels that are there in this type of an understanding of this type of a worldview. But one of the things that I came into contact with is that we were at an end of a cycle. They didn't lose anything. They needed to reemerge with something new. And that's what this cycle is all about. Regardless, and there was a big hype around 2012, and we're all here. So a lot of people made a lot of money on 2012. <laughs> and we still existed. <laughs> because when you really go into the hieroglyphics, 
and you really understand the ancient Maya, the ancient Maya hold worldviews of cycles of over 5,000 years. 5,000 year cycle where not one day is ever repeated. Their calendar system is that complex that we could identify a day. Not June 4th, and how it comes around every 365 days, but exactly that one day in a 5,000 plus year cycle. So when we enter 2012, we entered a real transformation, very similar to what David talks about, of Gaia and the new subtle energies that are available to us and our bodies and the earth is holding something new so that a new relationship within ourselves and a new relationship with all of the facets of the earth are here to come together. How did I get involved in this? Well, number one, I don't speak Spanish. I don't speak Zutihil. I want to. But the interior within me and the other world forces won't allow that to happen. They don't want me to get caught into, especially in my earlier years. Today would be very different. And I do speak Zutihil in ritual when I call forward and communicate with the other world forces, unless I have people with me from North America, and then I speak more in English, so they're aware of what I'm petitioning, what I'm calling for. I have an interpreter, and that interpreter works whenever I need to interact at an outer level, because inwardly, everything is communicated through dreams and visions and rituals and the fire that comes out of ritual. That is the form of communication. And I get dreams and visions, they get dreams and visions. We come together and we share them, and life happens. Life keeps emerging. And in spite of myself and any idea, whatever was going to evolve for me within this community, I could have never predicted it. I could have never even imagined how a Westerner, from an outsider from one perspective, but who has had a deep relationship with the subtle forces, and especially the ancient Maya subtle forces since 1983, have been able to step into and begin to rekindle the fire. So when we talk about ritual, and in the small groups later on this afternoon, I'll go into and showing some of the aspects of how fire, which is light, which is love, because the foundation for the Zutzahil Maya is the secret of love. It's a statue that's there in one of the temple houses, and it becomes the entrance point, just like David talks about love, how important it is as that entrance point into the emergence of everything, all of the qualities of life that come forward. For the Zutzahil Maya, that's called wisdom, which is different than when we think of wisdom. But the whole idea in the Mayan worldview is not to get information. That drove me crazy for my first five to seven years of doing ritual. I want to know what did this mean, what's happening to my body, this person's body. Give me information what I can do to heal. And they would say, do more rituals. 
Do more ritual, you just want more money. <laughs> That's all you want. I go ahead, I do more rituals, and in spite of my mind, in spite of my mind, something begins to change. And I've lived a life where I've experienced bodily changes without having to try to make a change to the body. I began and I awakened with my grandmother's death when I was seven years old, and I tripped over her, kicked her a few times, probably didn't help with the heart attack that she had, and she passed. This guilt-ridden seven-year-old boy was just didn't know what to do with himself. And we went to the wake, and there's my grandmother's body, and there she is standing talking with me, smiling with me, and the body was breathing. That was hard to grasp. <laughs> I tried to talk to my parents about it at age seven. <laughs> Didn't do too well. <laughs> or eight, nine, or 10, or anybody, usually down the road. But she gave me such a presence to know there's something else. Even though I panicked and they put her into the ground, because I didn't, she was alive, she was breathing. But she was still there. And then that afternoon, which many of you that work in hospitals knows what I'm talking about, I was napping with my mother in the room and suddenly we felt, heard somebody come in. We both woke up at the same time and we saw this glow of this crown of white light come into the room and hover and then just slowly lift up. And I knew there was more to life. It made a difference inside of me that I keep coming back to. It's not that I stayed with it, but I kept coming back. There's more to life. There's more to life. When I was 15, my parents wanted me to learn how to drive before I turned 16. So where did they take me on Sunday mornings? To a cemetery. <laughs> not good. <laughs> it's the only place I saw dead people was in funeral homes and hospitals and in cemeteries. <laughs> but that day was a profound day for me because I learned the difference between physical matter and spirit. Because <laughs> I first stopped for the wrong people. <laughs> yes. It was a miracle we didn't kill anybody. I didn't kill anybody. But I got it within about five, ten minutes. This is physical. This is subtle. And that helped me a great deal. Because I didn't know that difference. Because everything felt as one. And that began a journey for me to sort of stay open. <laughs> sort of. And then I came down with a rare blood disease when I was 17 and a half, my senior year in high school. And went through massive tests. I was in the hospital for over a week. They tested and tested. They said they didn't want to do the therapy. It was very expensive and very evasive. I don't remember exactly what it was. My doctor came in that night about 10 o'clock. And he said, can you trust me? What do I got to lose? 17 and a half year old male sitting there scared. He took out a little ambulance, a little carved wooden statue. And he asked me if I would wear that around my neck. 
Well, you can tell the look that I probably gave him at that point. <laughs> he took off his shoelace, tattered shoelace from his shoe, put it on this ambulance, put it on my neck, and in the morning, all my blood work was clear. It changed me. It was the first of several different things in my life that began to realize the relationship factor between the subtle world and the physical world. I didn't know what that meant. I tried to read it here and there. So I went to sleep a little bit, went off into business, was in a high position in the business community, and but I was haunted that I needed to do something different in my life. So at the ripe old age of around 28, I gave up my career, gave up my family disowned me, my, my wife at that time sort of humored me, eventually divorced me, and I went on to get a degree in clinical psychology, a master's degree. Finally thought my life was moving in the right directions, and then suddenly, after a couple of years, this voice started to come back. Are you open to changing how you look at psychology? No! <laughs> a no-brainer. <laughs> I just did all of this. I'm making 80% less than I was making in the business world. This is my career in front of me. I have no family. I have no support. I'm all alone. And you want me to give this up and change it again? Uh-uh. For nine months, I went through hell. It just, not that it haunted me, just the awareness around me, this will be better. Can you trust this? No. <laughs> no, I can't trust this. I gave up too much to trust up to this point. Suddenly, after about nine months, and I thought nine months was interesting in retrospect, <laughs> I was ready to be born. <laughs> And I was in the woods. This energy poured through me. And my dreams have always guided me my whole life. I'm just giving you a thumbnail it's, it's structure today. And I sat down in the woods on the floor. And suddenly there was this reweaving. I would call it a shape-shifting back then, but understanding my perception of the subtle physical worlds and the weaved nature of things. I was being reweaved into a different way and a different person. Then I began to read David's work on manifestation. It really made sense to me because manifestation is not trying to bring an object forward. It's who do I become that can live with this object? And I already had experienced that so many times in my life. So when I read that in David's work on manifestation, in that first very small book he published out of Binhorn, and then many of the copies since then, I really became aware of how much I have to change to really be able to live who I am. And I said yes to this, and then a vision came forward that showed me in a lotus position, a flat lotus position, and it said, when you come out of this vision, do this with your body. And up to that point, my knees were always at my, whenever I would try yoga or something like that, had just total difficulties in this whole physical area of my body. And I was able to go into a full lotus position. And it said, remember this. Remember what's possible. 
don't forget what's possible. Let's go forward a few more years. My future wife and I, we were together for 34 years and she passed three years ago. That's a different journey in and of itself. <laughs> but understanding that in 83, we had an image to go to Chichen Itza, to see the Maya, to see the pyramids. And this is my introduction to the Maya and the subtle world of the Maya. Because we entered, we went off on our own. We did the typical you know, two and a half hour tour on the site. We just went off. And suddenly, Disneyland opened up. We saw all of these people in full dress, incense, the smells, the odors, the structures of the sounds coming forward. Everything around us was fully alive, and we were wondering why no one was watching this spectacular structure. My wife and I had a very interesting relationship because we would meet in dreams, we would meet in meditation. We, we were very connected on the interior realms, probably more so for the first 10 years than we were in the exterior realms. <laughs> Eventually, we were able to change that and grow the exterior based upon what we felt on the interior. That took a while. But in the structure of that, the whole world opened up for an hour. And we watched it and we heard it. We remember trying to talk with some people at lunch and they see that spectacular structure and we finally began to admit to ourselves, maybe we were the only ones that saw this. And then that created a tension, a great fear inside of me. And I created a fight like I normally do when I'm scared. We went off in different directions. I went up to the top of the pyramid, in the in, inside of the pyramid, and I entered this room where this golden green jaguar is, and this room seemed about enough space to hold 20, 25 people. It was spacious and beautiful. I brought a large group up there 10 years later to meditate in there. That room barely held two people, and it's not because I got larger with age. <laughs> it was just what I experienced within that. And then I heard when I came down, I heard Eileen in the background calling my name out around the corner of this pyramid. And I came up and I walked around the corner and there she was face to face with a, with a, with a lizard. Um, our friend Carolyn Heinzer called it a grandfather lizard. And it was on its back legs and his head was equal to Eileen's head and the nose was about an inch away. I mean, her, the tongue and the lizard was about an inch away from her nose. And of course, I got just to be quiet. And she was quiet and eventually walked away. And then I had the felt sense awareness that this is where I'm going to spend a lot of my time. And of course, you know what my first response would be. No. <laughs> it's not where I'm going to spend. I'm a city boy. Camping for me is the Sheraton. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I have camped in jungles with jaguars around me and everything else, but that's a whole different set of stories and structures and what happened. But my fear was so great and I didn't want to go that route and, and nothing worked in my life for the next couple of years. Because I kept fighting. All my energy went to fighting of what not to do instead of beginning to see what is it that I need to do. And I really understand the struggles that we have always fighting against something. 
instead of learning how to embrace something. I had a subtle world teacher, a Tibetan, that had come forward around that time frame and began to try to explain and dialogue with things, but totally different than what David had in his experiences. Uh, I never was focused enough to really build a structure the way David did with that. I went through different experiences and how to learn about different things in the vastness of the world, but was never able to put that into a real organization. I finally said, I'm going to take my first group into Central America. And the fear was so great inside of me. And I was willing to just pay everybody their, their fees back, their airline tickets, everything back for that group. I was just so scared. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. Eileen and I, we laid down. She tried to center me, tried to help pull, pull me back together again. And suddenly, we heard this crackling sound. And our apartment at that time was on the fifth floor in a high rise, right at the point where three rivers come together. And we had never seen a Mayan vision serpent before, a picture of it or anything like that. And here was this cartoon face of a body coming out of the center where the three rivers are of this portal, coming all the way through into the bedroom, hovered over my face, and Eileen is seeing this also and kissed me on the lips. And I never had fear again about something that large. I had normal fears like everyone else. But the fear of nature, the fear of all those components, whenever I come back to that experience, settles me down, quiets me. I had a problem with my feet all the way through life and they wanted to break all the bones in both of my feet because they were so crooked and the structures around all of that and once I started to finally come into these relationships with life suddenly the bones began to realign themselves and structure differently and today my feet are fairly normal within that structure for those that have known me way back when, it's hard to grasp sometimes some of those things that are there. But I have a special relationship with bones and the ability to understand the communication that's there with the bones. So this is the history, and then I have a whole mind structure, which I think there's not enough time to go into, and experiences that help me to understand the subtle world. But when David talks about the component in the class that he just finished on the path of America, that humanity is moving from being able to manifest wholeness in a very confined and limited area, such as the family, the clan, and the tribe. And now we're expanding out and increasing our abilities to extend that wholeness and creating capacities into the world as a whole. That's at the essence what I feel with the ancient Maya tried to do out of a satellite model of the sun, where the sun base, you have one person that, that is the core of that, compared to what David talks about this time frame, is we're really here to come into the star model, where that we have all these individual points and structures that are there and available for us. And that star model I experienced is what I felt at the core of indigenous life, 
at the core of things that was there waiting at different time frames to come forward. When you look at the whole physical structure of the Mayan, the Inquisition, and the conquest, to put it into try two or three sentences, that when the conquest came, and I was able to spend a summer going on tour and several tours and through different rooms with in a group that my mentor was doing with an, with an art expert from the Vatican that understood the Maya and Linda's perception of the Maya, I was able to see how the two cultures had to come together because the overlap between Christianity and the indigenous was almost too parallel. It was so scary. And how at that time frame in my communication with, with the different forces, there was one path, one option that we could have taken. But instead, we went into a path of conquest. Now if you read history, and you read about the Zuzi Hill Maya, you're going to read that they're cowards. They never fought the Spaniards. They're the only Mayan group that never took battle. When the Spaniards came and they entered into the central Mexico area, the first thing they did is they hired shamans and shamans that would do the work for them. And they used those shamanic practices against the shamans of the time frame of the conquest. But when they came across the Zutzahil, the Zutzahil shamans were able to outdo their shamans and instead of a conquest and a bloodbath, constantly it would be re-coming back into a partnership. And a partnership that lasted until about the mid-1800s. And in the mid-1800s, the pressure became so great that they eventually forced the Zutihil Maya to give up their iconography, their artifacts, and their images in such a way that they have to create all Catholic images. Missing point, who is going to do the carving? The Zutihil Maya. <laughs> so what they ended up doing, because as you understand, in, like in Tibetan Buddhism, every statue has a cache or a pouch or a little object that becomes the, the energy force behind everything. And many times when, like the Tibetan materials, when different things go out on exhibit, they always take the cash out because that holds the source, that holds the life force of that statue, and that's always kept at the temple. Well, the object itself usually is out into the world. So instead of having a Catholic structure, which was a Catholic outer image, the Maya put an object into each statue that is one of theirs that connects them energetically. And for the next 150 years or more, they still began to worship the outer structure that looks Catholic. And all the academics have talked about how much the Maya, especially the Zutahil Maya, lost what they had, but they didn't for a long period of time. But they had to create folklore that would also match the stories. And in the folklore, what's happened over time is they bought into the folklore. One could say 
they shared the story so much with the conquerors and with other people that their imagination of their limitations and the imagination that they kept sharing and verbalizing became their truth. And they began to be separated from the wholeness that they once understood. And that became the journey of losing what the meaning really is inside of their life. Shamanism for the Maya comes into a different shape and form, and academics also are beginning to believe that Mayas, ancient and modern, aren't shamans because we don't travel to the other world. We don't use hallucinogenics. We don't dance necessarily or chant per se. We stand here. <laughs> we know that the subtle world comes to the physical world and we create a space, and in that space, we begin communicating, we begin sharing. So the shamans of today in the village, sometimes they all, everyone has cell phones. Well, if you have a cell phone, they'll always answer the call, but the energy is never disrupted of the ritual because they're not in charge of the ritual. It's a partnership, and the subtle world aspect just keeps doing what they're doing at the same time that the ritual continues to evolve. Because the shaman is really, in, if we look at the literal term of what they do, they're a ritual communicator. They talk. They develop friendships. They develop relationships with every force that's there. Because it's based upon the depth of our relationship with the subtle worlds or within the larger ecology that we're working with, the way David puts it, the invisible, invisible ecological system we're working with today. It's communication, it's relationships, it's respect, it's a collaboration, it's a give and a take behind all things that exist. So one of the things that happens is that my role coming back into the structure is learning how to allow the essence that communicates with me to be present with me. Since I don't speak the language, I will sometimes sit in a position within their temple houses for three or four hours and not say a word. Drove my wife crazy. <laughs> Drives people in the groups crazy. <laughs> But in the connection, it's allowing the presence to begin to emerge. As I, and I never wanted to wear my own clothes unless they asked me to. So I didn't. I wore just jeans and structures. And at some point, they first gave me a shawl, a, a scarf to wear. And the scarf holds different levels of meaning and structure. But the first layer of the scarf is the serpent. And in the serpent, when the scarf comes on, the serpent for the ancient Maya is one level of connectivity. It's a two-faced serpent. You see it on all the stellas and on the stone carvings and pottery and the structures that are there. 
and it begins the first layer of connection. There's nothing written about how to do anything in the Zutzahil tradition. Everything is you go into a ritual, through the exchange of energies of fire in the ritual itself, it's brought into your field, and you have the free will to have a relationship with it at your pacing. And through the relationship that you have, it begins to change. Awarenesses come forward, which I'll talk about as I, when I close. Because it's part of the four faces in my perception from an indigenous perspective of Gaia that David talks about. I woke up this morning and saw how those four faces all come together from an indigenous way. In the connectivity that's there and the relationship you begin to have with whatever it is you're dealing with as your, as your other world forces, from the she to different guides to the postmortem realms, to whatever it is that you're involved in, there's relationships to be had of what our wholeness is. Not telling us what to do. Not telling us what we're doing wrong. The relationship to bring one thing in, love. And love is light. And love and light comes through fire. So we do a lot of fire rituals. From one candle to multiple groups of candles to many different types of groupings and structures and to large burns that sometimes it costs up to three, four hundred dollars worth of candles for one burn. And in the process of that, it becomes a place of contact between the subtle and the physical world. It becomes a place where we begin to connect to have a relationship. So when David and Julie talk about sovereignty and they talk about creating real space, I know exactly what they're talking about. I've been doing that for years. Now when I write about it, unfortunately for them probably, I don't necessarily talk about it in their terminology. <laughs> I try to, and that's my goal, is to really understand because I feel their terminology is the terminology of the planet today, for especially for the European and and North American cultures and other cultures to really understand a universal way of looking at things and creating things. And my indigenous contexts are really happy about that because love is love is love. Light is light is light. There's different facets, but there's the core that's there. And what they're important with is that the core of understanding the mystery of love and how that opens, not as a psychological structure, not as a word that I say, but to something I have to open, to ask the presence of. To reveal itself, to form the relationship that we're capable of having, that opens the doorway into possibilities. For the first part in every ritual, it's called connectivity. What the ritual communicator, the shaman, does is communicate 
not focusing on the illness, not focusing on what's wrong or happening in the world or with a person's illness or body, but just focusing on bringing connectivity through all the forces of Gaia. Because we use different names for every aspect of the earth and the different aspects in the parts of the earth and the sky and different aspects of weather, the different aspects of different landscapes, different aspects of all the ways that we live our life from cooking to weaving to cleaning. They all hold different names into the ways we work the fields and the structures. And all of the aspects of life are brought forward in the beginning aspect. The weather, the volcanoes, all the aspects of nature are always brought forward because we need total connectivity to whatever level we can have to begin to look at what is the areas of struggle, challenge, that we're beginning to deal with. Not again from an information perspective, but how do we dismantle and unravel and untangle and unweave this illness, this challenge in our mind, these perceptions that we hold? We are never destroying. We are never killing. We are never sending it off to the stars or to the moon. We're always in a process of assisting and asking for the assistance to unweave, to untangle, to unravel, to dismantle whatever that shadow, whatever the struggle is that we're dealing with in our bodies, in our mind, in our emotion, or our spirit. And in the process of doing that, it then allows the natural core of wholeness to keep flowing through to come into that area of the body, to come into that area of the mind, to come into that area of spirit, to come into the place that gives us a different way of thinking. In the ancient Maya, they call that ila. It's the ability to perceive. And almost on every ritual, and every stella, in a lot of the different ancient sites, I've traveled over 300 plus archeological sites through Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and Belize, and began to have basic communication with the subtle world, and some of them very in-depth over a 20-year period of time to begin to understand what is really there. There's a concept that the ancient Maya used, and it's called Shabalde. And if you look it up in the literature, they'll call it, it's the living hell. It's where people go that have illnesses, and, and when you die, it's the hell of Christianity and the structures that are around that. But when they finally understood the interpretation of the word Shabalde, it means right. Well, what is fright? Worse than fear? Fright is when we experience the divine. Fright is when we make a connection and suddenly we have those mystical tears inside of us or outwardly. There's a place of fright that's there where you know if you say yes and you take the next step forward, the life that you knew would not be the same. It's not fear. It's fright. 
And I, how I learned that was back in the early 90s, we were at the call, and we were in, my wife and I, it was a very, the rooms weren't air conditioned, it was like 100 plus at night. And so we slept in separate beds, thank God for her, we did it that night. And we had a couple people with us in other rooms. And suddenly, the energy changed in the room, and all of the images off of the pottery, and the stellas, and the carving, and the temple walls, they all came alive in the room around me. I thought, this is it. <laughs> this is my time to go. And I was in the next bed seeing all of this happening at the same time. But what they were doing is they were trying to calm me. And they continually calmed me and touched me and continually put me under the covers, which I initially thought they were putting me under the covers because I'm going to die. <laughs> to begin to understand Shabalbe was a place of healing was a place of transformation. It was a place of transmutation. It's where the mystery of the energies come from, from the forces that are there. And I began to understand is that at the essence, let's say something as frightening as it is for most of us of cancer, when I've communicated to the heart of cancer, that deity, of cancer, it always helps me to understand what the person needs to walk through the journey. It's not the source. It's always part of our healing. And I got that that day and that experience that I had. I also began to become aware of that in the Zuzi Hill approach, that nothing happens singular. It always happens in groups. And there's groups of forces always working together, collaborating together, because they don't have the answers. That wasn't comforting to me initially. I wanted forces that had answers. You know what I mean? What they did is learn how to collaborate, to see what's there, what's needed. And they also believe in working with traditional medicines and traditional therapies to bring and to work with, just very much like Tim and Vance were talking about with the land and with people just coming together. And how to bring a support team of healing that's really there to really support you in relationship to everything that's present, that you're dealing with that's there in all modalities to assist you to heal. To assist you to heal, not to get rid of the illness, but for your emergence to who you're meant to be at this stage of your life. So in a simple foundational structure, there are several forces that are always called upon at the beginning of any relationship. And as first, I'm not going to give you the Mayan names of that. But the first is love. And there's a special force, name, statue, that represents that, of the love of the cosmos, the love that's there behind everything. The second part of that is another force that teaches you how to walk on life, how to be different in your day-to-day -day living. A third force communicates with your uniqueness of your soul to see, is this your time to die or not? And you know, we're only going to get that message usually once. 
this is my time. And all the other times, it communicates with your soul to learn where to place you back on your road, back on your path. What is this time and this space really about in your life? And then to bring together through the force of love and through the force of an energy of what that love does is to stimulate the qualities that are either awake that need to be refreshed or that might be dormant inside of you, but whatever that's there to stimulate those seeds to begin to grow inside of you, that you can live what life is about. And it's not specific, it's the generality of where are you going to explore love? Where are you going to explore quality of relationships to life in different segments, in different ways, and different facets that's there for yourself? And there's a weaver that begins the weaving of that with the energies of Mother Nature and the energies of humanity that come forward to see what our potential is as human beings and the uniqueness that we have to move and to anchor that. And that's your primary support team that starts the journey that opens you to other forces and other awarenesses and other things you need to could do and explore in your outer life that brings together the subtle and the physical and seeing what's possible for you. Because the goal is to bring out our potential, to bring out our possibilities, to live the life in community and tribe that we're really here to live, especially the larger tribe of the earth. Because again, all of the facets that David talks about, of Gaia, all the components of nature and minerals and this and that and the waters and the light and the stars and the moon, they're all important elements that we have no idea what to ask for. We just know we're open to receive and to emerge who we are. Because in the last part I want to try to bring forward is that we are all growing our unique tree of life. In every indigenous culture, they always talk about the tree of life. It was always such an interesting mystery for me to try to make sense out of it. But what I finally began to gather is how the tree is upon the tree and is upon the tree and how it keeps growing into different components and different structures. But the most important thing over 3,000 years for the Maya in Mesoamerica, whenever you start a new journey of healing or being the king or the queen or a shaman or whatever your role is, you always start as a tiny, fragile little sprout to grow your possibility on your tree, to grow your possibility on your family tree, to grow your possibility on the community tree, the tree of the country, the tree of whatever we're looking at that we're connected to. And that's why new directions feel vulnerable. We're really new sprouts. And right now, we're really new sprouts. 
<laughs> I think that's what the weekend is here. All David and Julie's work is, is all about. And the communication with the she, and like that for me, is always so important because the stories that they tell helps me to begin to, oh yeah, I can look at my life today different. I can look at situations in a different way. I can't do what the she are doing because I'm in physical matter. But I can take the underlying story and see how does that story apply to me? How does that story apply to my family, to my friends, to my work? How does that story apply at the she? I reread murals and all the messages, no offense David, I read your stuff a lot too. <laughs> but their messages on the essence of that story is so important for me. Because it helps me to really see where my limits are, where am I tied up, where am I knotted in my thinking, where am I knotted in my beliefs on what's possible to open in my body, or my imagination, or in relationships, or in life in general. Where am I so knotted up that I'm always standing in my own way? You know what I mean? Because we are. We're always standing in our own way. And that essence of love and the petitioning of that through the land and through animals, through the wind, through the outer wind and the inner wind, which is our breath, and all of it allows light flow and connectivity and potential and possibility to really begin to come forward. So from my perspective, as I was working with the four faces, the first one is participation. And the way David puts it is a self-regulatory biosphere. That's our capacity. And for me, the ancient, I mean, the modern Maya are very much ecologically orientated. But they really understand how not to let negative energy come back into the earth. So when we have surgery, you know, when my wife had her breasts removed and certain other Parts. They say, can you give me the breast so we can do a ritual with it? And I said, I don't think so. <laughs> so I ended up using a symbolic structure to represent that, to cleanse the energy, to return the breast back to the earth. To cleanse the energy of the candles that we burn, that holds the different images and energies of the suffering, the challenges, or the potentials at times, and to neutralize that, we do rituals with that. We do rituals with the structures around the, um, the cigarettes that sometimes are used, smoked by certain types of statues, they actually smoke, or the people that's there, because the tobacco, as it does in most cultures, hold different types of thoughts and structures and absorbs that, and then that's ritualized. We're always doing everything to ritualize, at least through the ritual process, to return to things back to the earth in wholeness, not into contamination. To do all of that, it's based upon 
a lot of the structures of a word that I've used over the years is tra transmutation, our abilities to transmute. When I heard the way David described the whole fairy hope and then uh, Jeremy's perceptions within all of that, it made sense. We have a name called Atma, and Atma means there's a fire that is always burning inside regardless of the source of darkness, regardless of the source of challenge, regardless of whatever it is that's in our way, that light is always present and can return to the light to take us through the darkness, to take us through the journey and beginning the dismantling, unraveling and untangling whatever that's there so light can emerge back into our life. So from my perspective, that's part of participation. Perception, a way of seeing and understanding the world. That we allow ourselves to live and add our unique energy, our unique life. And how and what we perceive and what we share within ourselves, inwardly and outwardly with others. That whenever I look at in the news, I won't just absorb the news or watch it or run from it. I need to transmute whatever my reactivity is so I bring back light behind that event. That's my responsibility to diminish our relationship to the screen. We all have responsibilities to do these things, and it's at the heart of true indigenous work. It's at the heart of Gaia, the capacity to bring perceptions forward of a person or event or my personal relationships which are always the hardest for all of us to live with, to find that space of wholeness and connectivity once again. Partnership for Gaia as a world soul plus the collective spirit and energy of the larger that participates, that gives to all the aspects that form the earth that behind everything we do and we live and our experiences supports this whole ecology between the invisible and visible forces always coming together. We're always in partnership. What is the quality of that partnership? If I meet you for the first time and I shake hands and I touch an essence, I used to believe, well, I'm with that essence forever. Not. I need a relationship. I come back to it. We sit together. We spend and share energy together, creating real space. Real space is so critical for whatever we do, whatever we create, whatever we explore. And the last one is presence as a new consciousness within individuals that I hold the capacity to explore transmutation. I hold the capacity to have a different perception. I hold the capacity to have a partnership. So my felt sense of who I am can flow from within me, through the fire and through the mystery that's really available to us. That mystery is, is the critical part for myself what I see in the community and what we're trying to emerge back into. Now, how many people think like this in the community? A lot of senile Alzheimer's type of elders. <laughs> <laughs> There's not a lot, but with the context that I have when I share my stories, their first response is, I remember my father sharing that with me. 
I remember when I was a boy, I had a relationship with the last major living sage, which is a Nahuatl, and he talked the way you're talking today. And I know I can find some people in the community that still believe this because he feels it in his own sense. You feel it in your body. Our body is our feedback system that re-educates our mind, re-educates our senses, re-educates our perceptions, re-educates everything that we're about. We can't do that with our mind. We need relationship with life, with love. images of fire rituals and the images that come out of the fire and how we use those images to help change our own energies and our own life and our own structure. Those of you that were in a couple classes where I published those online, uh, you saw a couple of those I'll be talking about. Thank you so much. What a wonderful heart. Oh.